tonight at 6.30 is the final time of the apologetics class that has been going on, a time for application. Uh, We're going to come in our church series today, and then next week will be the last one. As I mentioned last Sunday, then Marla and I are going to take a two-week vacation. Uh, But today we come to a difficult subject, the subject of church discipline, And you'll find an outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages uh, at all the exits. And there are the printed and soon to be the audio messages on the church website as well. I want to read two scriptures that are pertinent. I'm not going to be expounding these verse by verse, but I want to have them as the backdrop for what we're going to look at this morning. And the first is in Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 15, where Jesus says, if your brother sins, and many manuscripts read against you, uh, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Uh, But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses... Every fact may be confirmed, and if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then the other scripture is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to read the entire chapter. Again, I can't uh, go through it verse by verse in the message, but... It's a central passage on this topic. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as doesn't even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you're assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus." Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter, that would probably be a letter that has now been lost, not a part of our canon of scripture. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I didn't at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother If he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, 
or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Well, it's kind of a heavy topic, so we're going to start again today with a cartoon on uh, church discipline. Uh, if, it only it, if only it were so simple as to uh, write on the blackboard over and over, I will not criticize the pastor, but uh, there may be some of you here that don't have a whole lot of background in the church, and uh, to bring up this topic of church discipline kind of sounds like we're trying to revive the Salem witch trials or reinstitute the Inquisition. Um, it calls to mind Nathaniel Hawthorne's novel where um, he, he has Hester Prynne uh, who committed adultery with the pastor. The Puritans make her wear the scarlet red letter A on her chest to shame her in the scarlet letter. Um, where we're at now as a culture, I think, was pretty well described by the secular philosopher. He's not a Christian. In fact, he was a, a Jewish um, homosexual man. But Alan Bloom was a philosopher who argued in his 1987 bestseller, The Closing of the American Mind, that tolerance built on the assumption of moral relativity has become what he called the chief virtue of our culture. And he argued that if we do away with the notion of truth and everyone's view is equal to everyone else's, then we can't have rational discourse uh, about the whole subject of ethics. And he, he pointed out that in this kind of a world, to judge any behavior as evil is unthinkable, and he was pointing out that even many of his college students, I think he taught at the University of Chicago, he said many of his students were hesitant to even say that Hitler was evil for killing six million Jews. That's where the culture has gone. And, and uh, I think that that prevailing cultural value of tolerance and not judging anyone has flooded into the evangelical church. I would venture to say that even if you've been in the church for many, many years, few of you have ever been a part of a church that has disciplined a sinning member. Some churches do. Some don't do it very well. Uh, but most churches just dodge that one. They don't want to touch that one at all. And we think that if we're judging any behavior, then we're throwing the first stone, as the story of the woman caught in adultery, um, uh, Jesus said in that story. And it's perceived as being unloving to judge anyone. And so churches either accept or just choose to overlook gross violations of biblical standards and sometimes they even do that when pastors fall into sin. I have heard many, many cases of pastors who are, are being immoral and they just move maybe to another church or 
the church forgives them and they keep staying on as pastor. Now, I'll be the first to admit that the subject is neither easy to deal with or pleasant to deal with. This is a message I hope I never have to apply, okay? I hope it's theoretical and we can all go home and say, well, yeah, that one's tucked away in the uh, behind the glass if we ever need it, break glass in case of emergency, but we won't probably ever do that, I hope. But, you know, we have to come back to what does the Bible say because the Bible and not our culture is always the standard. And if we go with the culture in a short while, we are just far, far adrift from the Bible. Uh, some of the, ch- the reformers named church discipline as the third mark of a true church. The first mark was the faithful preaching of the Word of God. The second mark was the uh, careful administration of the, the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the third, they said, was church discipline. And so in this series on the church, I felt that we would not be complete if I didn't give a message on this subject. And the main point that I'm going to make today is that the church must practice biblical church discipline toward professing Christians who persist in known sin. In that regard, I think probably there is no verse more taken out of context and misapplied than Matthew 7, 1. Everyone knows that verse. Judge not, lest you be judged. I've heard that verse. I was on a jury once, and the woman had a 2-0 blood alcohol level, and there was a woman on our jury who wouldn't convict her because, judge not, she quoted that verse. Uh, Talk about a misapplication. If you read Matthew chapter 7, just a few verses later, down in verse 6, Jesus says, do not give what is holy to dogs, and he doesn't mean your pet, And do not throw your pearls before swine. And then in verse 15, he adds, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Obviously, to obey those verses, you have to make some fairly astute judgments. You need to say, wait a minute, that person is a dog. That person is a swine. That's a pretty harsh judgment. That guy is a wolf in sheep's clothing. I need to avoid him. Uh, So Jesus, by saying, do not judge lest you be judged, is not telling us, don't make any judgments, throw out all discernment, because he goes right on to say, you have to be pretty discerning. Um, And further, as we read in 1 Corinthians 5.12, Paul there tells the church that they are in fact charged with judging those who are inside the church. So practicing biblical church judgment, or discipline, I should say, is not violating Jesus' command not to judge. Um, I want to look this morning at three things. The purposes for church discipline, and then the problems that require church discipline, and then finally the procedure How do we go about it when we need to do it? So first of all, the purposes for church discipline, and uh, there we can consider it in four different directions. First of all, 
and most important, I believe, toward God. Toward God, church discipline vindicates publicly his honor and his holiness. And as you know, God's holiness is a dominant theme throughout the entire Bible. It means God is apart from and totally opposed to all sin. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus 19.2, God told his people, You shall be holy, for I am holy. I, the Lord your God, am holy. And uh, Peter repeats that command in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter also, in 1 Peter 2, refers to the church as a holy priesthood and a holy nation. Now that assumes that the church is not a, a mixed group of believers and unbelievers, that in order to join the church, you must have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible affirms that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and therefore we all need a Savior, and that God sent his own eternal Son in human flesh, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life and then to die as a substitute for all sinners who will put their trust in him. And the Bible is clear that eternal life is a free gift that God gives to everyone who comes to Christ and believes in him. And then, as redeemed people, as people who have been born of the Spirit of God, we then are to join together with other believers in local churches and live distinct from this evil world in which we live. Jesus said, we're still in the world, John 17, but we are not to be of the world. And as Paul said in our text, I'm not telling you to go out of the world and live in a monastery somewhere, uh, but I am telling you to be distinct from the world, to be different from it. And so now, as new creatures in Christ, we represent God to this godless world in which we live. And if we blend in with it, we, we've lost our testimony. And so it's essential that we deal with sin in our midst. And because God's name is bound up with his church, then when his people sin, if we don't deal with it, God will disassociate himself from uh, his people. He will discipline us severely when we sin, if we don't repent. And uh, if the church doesn't deal with it, eventually the Lord even disassociates himself from the church. The messages to the churches, the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, uh, the Lord repeatedly warns if they don't deal with their sins that he is going to set himself against that church and eventually he says he will remove that church's lampstand. That, that's their witness. It's a remarkable thing. Think about it. God would rather have no witness in a city than he would to have his name mingled with sin. It's better not to have a church in a city than to have a church that taints the name of the Lord by tolerating open sin in their midst. And so the most important thing I think of church discipline is 
We need to exonerate the name of God. We need to hold him as holy. Then, toward the church itself is the second purpose. Uh, Church discipline restores purity, and it deters others from sinning. In uh, 1 Corinthians 5-7 that we read, Paul commands, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are, in fact, unleavened. Leaven or yeast in the Bible is a type of sin in many places. And as you know, if you've baked, you put a small bit of leaven in a lump of dough, and pretty soon it permeates the entire lump of dough. It spreads. And so Paul is saying symbolically what he also says very plainly in verse 2 and in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 5. That is, you need to get the sinning man out of your church, out of the assembly, or else it's going to spread. Uh, You can see that principle at work in families. If a family does not discipline a defiant child, pretty soon the other kids go, hey, he, he disobeyed mom and dad and got away with it just fine, so what's the problem? So then they begin disobeying because they learn there's no consequence for disobedience. And, and pretty soon, the whole family is in disarray. Same thing happens in our culture. If the government gets lax on uh, enforcing the laws of the land, pretty soon the whole country is in anarchy because everyone says, well, it doesn't matter. You know, we can get away with it. And the whole country devolves into Uh, state of uh, chaos. And in the local church, God has given authority to the elders, and part of their job is to uphold God's standards of holiness in the church, both doctrinally and morally. Uh, There needs to be doctrinal purity on the main doctrines of the faith and moral purity. Uh, Let me give you an example. If you have a, a single woman in the church and she begins dating an unbeliever and then announces I'm going to marry him and the church tolerates that, guess what? There are a lot of single women in any local church who are waiting on the Lord for a husband and they'll go, oh, well, she married an unbeliever. They seem happy. Church didn't do anything. And suddenly her dating field goes a lot wider and uh, she's dating an unbeliever and marrying him. Pretty soon it just spreads through the whole church, because the biblical standard that believers should only marry other believers has been disregarded. And uh, that's the way sin spreads. And if we don't uphold God's standards of holiness for the church, pretty soon the church just looks like the world. Uh, The city of Corinth was infamous for sexual uh, promiscuity. Uh, in fact, to Corinthianize meant to be immoral. That was just a, a phrase in that day. But Paul here says, what's going on in your church is even worse than what's going on in the culture. And furthermore, you guys aren't even shocked. They were tolerant, and not only tolerant, they were boasting about it, about, oh, we're, we're an open church. You know, we can accept anyone and everyone in here just as they are. And they were boasting 
in accepting this man's sin, a man who is being intimate with his stepmother. Probably the woman herself was not a believer, or else Paul would have said to put her out of the church as well. Um, But his point is, you guys should have mourned. You should have been repentant over this. You should have dealt with this guy right up front and uh, removed him from your midst. And so, again, the point is, God would rather that a local church be small and pure than that it be big and tolerating sin in its midst. Better to have a group of 100 people who are faithful to the Lord than to have a church of 10,000 where all manner of evil is just kind of welcomed and tolerated. So toward the Lord, we have to uphold his holiness. Toward the church, discipline restores purity and deters others from sinning. Then toward the world, third purpose, church discipline displays God's standards of holiness and draws a line between the church and the world. Today's church tries to attract worldly people by communicating the message, hey, we're just normal folks here, you know, we all sin just like you do, Uh, but don't worry, we don't judge sin here. You know, because we're all sinners, so we accept all sin in our midst, and we're tolerant. And so you can come and join us, and you'll feel safe. I've seen that phrase over and over in evangelical churches. You can feel safe here. In other words, we won't confront your sin. You know, we want you. We want the numbers, so come on in. And somehow they hope that in that confusion... They're going to hear the gospel and get saved, but it's a mixed message. Scripture is very clear. We need to be distinct, different than the world. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. And then this strong statement, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Wow, I chew on that verse often. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, we're not talking here about legalistic rules. I've been in churches, you probably have or you've heard of them, where, you know, they think that worldliness means the big five or they've got their lists of sins, but they aren't biblical sins. There are extra-biblical rules that the church is imposing on everyone, how you dress, how you act, what you do, what you can't do, all of that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about becoming a people who love God so much that we don't want to be a part of this evil world in the way it thinks, in its values, all of that sort of thing. So, Toward God, the church then uh, publicly vindicates his holiness and uh, his honor. Toward the church itself, church discipline uh, restores purity to the church. It keeps others from sinning. Toward the world, church discipline draws a line and says, here's God's standards of holiness uh, here's the way the world works, and you've got to cross that divide to be a part of God's people. 
And then finally, toward the offender, and usually we put this one first, but toward the offender, church discipline, when it's done biblically, conveys biblical love and seeks to restore the sinner. Now, some, many wrongly think discipline is opposed to love. But Hebrews 12 says, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And every parent knows that. If you love your child, you don't let him just be defiant and run amok. You love him. You want him to learn to obey. Because otherwise, he's going to grow up and disobey the law and end up in jail and have all kinds of problems. Love disciplines. And the Bible is so clear, sin always damages and destroys people and relationships. Always, always, always. Sin has a detrimental effect on people and on the relationships that we cherish. And so if you see a brother or sister in sin, and you go, eh, I wouldn't do that, man. You know, I mean, that's, but it's none of my business. I'm not going to meddle. You're, you're not loving him or her. You're hating him. It's like seeing somebody who's going to step in front of a speeding bus, and instead of grabbing them and pull them back, you go, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't do that, man, but go ahead. No, that's not love. Love tries to draw a person back. And as we've seen, sin is like yeast. It spreads, and pretty soon the whole lump is infected. It's like a contagious disease, again, if if it's not quarantined, it spreads. And James, in James 5, 19 and 20, says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so love seeks to restore a sinner to the Lord. And the goal in church discipline is never vindictive. You know, if, if we're trying to punish people, make them pay, throw them out of the church, that is not biblical church discipline. Our aim should always be restore. This person is hurting. They may not even know they're hurting, but they are. And they need to come back to the Lord where there's forgiveness and mercy Galatians chapter 6 one and verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And looking to yourself implies I, that could be me. I am not sinlessly perfect. That could be me the next time around. So you go in humility not in pride, you're not self-righteous. Gentleness does not mean weakness. The word means strength under control. And the word restore was used of putting a, a socket, a bone that was out of the socket back in the socket so it could be restored to usefulness. It was used of mending broken nets so those nets could be used for their purpose again. So the idea is never, we want to get this person Rather, we want to help this person. We want to restore them to the Lord. And sometimes that requires a sharp rebuke, but more often it requires 
just gently coming alongside a person. Uh, you just have to pray about what's going to be the most effective with this person to restore them to the Lord. Now, invariably, when the subject comes up, people say, well, what if it doesn't work? Well, we're, we're required to obey God and leave the results to him. Uh, Jesus, I think, implied it wouldn't work every time in Matthew 18:15 when he said, if he listens to you, he may listen, he may tell you to take a hike, but you go in love with the motive of seeking to restore that person. If he listens to you, Jesus said, you've won your brother. Now, what problems require church discipline? First of all, I'm going to give you a principle and then comment briefly. The principle is this. We should deal with any professing believer who associates with this church and is knowingly and rebelliously disobeying the clear commandments of Scripture. Let me unpack that a little bit. First of all, they must be a professing believer. Paul had written what we, a letter we no longer have where he told the church, don't associate with immoral people. Well, they took it, okay, let's build the walls and build a monastery, separate from the world. Paul clarifies that here and says, no, 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 that's not what I meant. I'm talking about anybody who claims to be a Christian and is immoral or covetous or an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. And then he clarifies in verse 12, and he says, It's God's business. He will judge the world, but the church must judge those in their midst. Now, our first step in going to someone in sin would be to make sure, does he understand the gospel? Because there are people who sit under the gospel week after week after week, and it goes right by them. And they've never truly understood uh, what it means to trust Christ. And that means uh, they don't know how to live a life of holiness because they don't have the Holy Spirit living in them. So first and foremost, just go over the gospel and make sure they're born again. So a professing believer, secondly, they must associate with this church. Now, our church constitution and bylaws specify that when you join this church, you are submitting to the discipline of this church, and you have to sign away on that. Um, but also, if someone is attending this church regularly, and especially maybe they've gotten involved in a ministry, we want to try and um, restrict ministry opportunities to those who are members, but say they've gotten involved in a ministry and it comes out that they're involved in some serious sin, well, I think we still have to practice church discipline. Uh, I know we're thinking, well, we're going to get sued. Maybe. Uh, you can't let that deter you. People sue you for stubbing their toe on your property. But you, you have to do what's right. And the world doesn't say, let's see, was that person a member or not? The world just says, oh, somebody who's going to Flagstaff Christian Fellowship is you know, doing X and living like this. And so the testimony of Christ through our church gets tainted. So if you come here regularly, Lord willing, if we hear of some difficulty that is serious, then we're going to come to you. Uh, the third thing, a person has to be knowingly and defiantly disobedient to God's word. 
Um, we shouldn't publicly discipline a person for spiritual immaturity. We all need to grow in certain areas. We all need to grow in humility and love and patience and kindness and all of the fruit of the Spirit. That's a lifelong project. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, a text we studied not too long back, Paul says this, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Now that obviously calls for discernment. You have to figure out, is this person unruly, faint-hearted, or weak? And we shouldn't encourage the unruly. They need to be admonished. And we shouldn't admonish the faint-hearted or weak. They need either to be encouraged or helped, not to be chewed out. So you have to discern, where's this person at spiritually? And you come alongside again as a brother. Sometimes a brand new Christian doesn't even know what the Bible says about basic morality. And they just need to be taught. Now, after you teach them, if they say, well, I have a right to keep living with my girlfriend or whatever, at that point they've moved from being uh, weak to being unruly because they know the truth and they're just saying, eh, I'm not going to obey it. Uh, I find the analogy of rearing children is helpful here. When my kids were young, say I have a three-year-old and they're acting like a three-year-old, I didn't discipline them in the sense of... um, you know, severe punishment or anything for that. They're being three. They need to grow up, so I'll come alongside and say, wait a minute, there's a better way to act here. Don't act like that. Act like this. But if they then got in my face and said, you can't tell me what to do, you know, I am you know, then they've just moved from being a three-year-old to being a defiant three-year-old. And that's when I came in more strongly and said, wait a minute, you're not going to talk to me as your father that way. I am not going to allow that, so let's change your attitude. And at that point, you know, there was stronger discipline. And so, again, uh, we don't discipline a person for immaturity, only for defiance. And then the last thing, the person has to be disobeying the clear commandments of Scripture. Uh, You don't discipline someone for areas where the Bible does not have clear commandments. And many, many legalistic churches err in this regard. They get their list. For example, you don't discipline someone for drinking alcoholic beverages because the Bible does not prohibit all alcohol. It does prohibit drunkenness. So if someone is drinking to the point of being drunk, yes, that's an offense that we should discipline for. Uh, You don't discipline somebody for going to a movie. In my day, that was a serious offense in the church I grew up in. Uh, Just any movie. And we're talking back in the 1950s and 60s when the most uh, racy thing was the John Wayne movie. Um, No, you don't do that. But if someone's going to pornographic movies, yeah, that's sin. You can't go to a pornographic movie and keep your mind pure. And you go through Scripture, and there are many, many lists of sins, and I can't go over them, but let me summarize them with these five things. There are violations of God's moral commandments. 
There are unresolved relational sins such as gossip, slander, anger, abusive speech, those kinds of things. Uh, There is divisiveness in the church. Someone is trying to build a faction and divide the church. Uh, There's false teaching on major doctrines. Again, not, I believe this view of prophecy, you believe that view, but we're talking the, the core of the gospel. And then there's disorderly conduct and refusal to work. If someone is just being lazy and sponging off the church, not working when they're bodily able, then that's an offense for discipline. So we've looked at the purpose for discipline, and we've looked at the problems that require it. Let me wrap this up by looking briefly at the procedure for discipline. And the Bible gives us the following steps. First of all, there should be a private meeting. Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins... Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Now, usually it is better to go in person. Um, I know it's safer to send an email. Uh, I think it's better if you can go in person and talk to the person. They can then see your heart and that you're concerned for them. Now, if you're concerned for your physical safety, this person is violent. Or if there's a questionable morality, uh, guys, don't go to a woman who uh, could cause some sort of uh, moral compromising situation. Don't do that or vice versa, uh, women with men. Then there's a different approach. But your objective in going is not to set him straight. It's not to get things off your chest by just telling him how wrong he is and how he made you feel. You know, in other words, to vent your anger. Your aim is to go and get him to listen. And you want to see him come back to the Lord. Uh, The Greek word that Jesus uses there when he says, show him his fault, is used in a court of law of a lawyer who convinces the judge about his, his client or about the uh, other person's guilt or whatever. So the idea is you want to go in the best way to convince a person, you know, you're in sin, and the best way isn't to say, well, my opinion is, is to say, can I share with you what the Scripture says? And just let the Bible speak for itself. Get out of the way, show them the Word of God, and uh, your opinion isn't important. God's Word is the authority. Now, Several things about Jesus' direction. First of all, if your brother is in sin or if he sins against you, you're the one to go, not the pastor. I'm off the hook. (laughs) You go. And I've had people come to me, well, so-and-so's doing this. And my answer is, have you gone to them? Have you gone to them? If not, let me show you how. And after you've done it, please come back to me and tell me how it went. So I'm going to hold you accountable to go directly to the person. Uh, You say, well, I need prayer before I go, so you call up 15 of your friends. No, that's called gossip. (laughs) Yes, you should pray, and maybe you have one trusted confidant who isn't going to share it, and you can go to them for counsel and for prayer and say, "I, I, I really need prayer going into this. Fine. Limit. The, the number. 
One is usually enough. And then go. Then, secondly, check your own heart first. Make sure you've taken the log out of your own eye, as Jesus says in Matthew 7. Make sure you look to yourself so that you too aren't tempted, Galatians 6. Check your motives. Again, if you're going to prove he's wrong and I'm right, no, wrong motive. That's not the right motive. Uh, You go in obedience to God, and my aim sincerely is I want to see my brother back with the Lord. And he's not walking with the Lord when he's in this sin. And, uh, you know, your aim is that he would be restored again to the Lord. And then make sure you get the facts. Sometimes people will come and tell you something, and boy, you take their side immediately because they're your good friend, and you go right to the person and chew them out for what they did to your friend, and you've never bothered to get the facts. book of Proverbs says the first guy who comes presents his case always seems right. So you listen to the second guy. So you you need to listen to all sides and get the facts. And if you're going to that person, you need to go with a fact mission at first. You go in gentleness. You go with wisdom. Usually a sharp rebuke isn't going to cut it. The best way is to come along as a brother or sister and let them know you care about them, that you love them, that you want to see them walking with the Lord. And then they'll be more likely to listen. Now, how many times do you go privately before you go to the next level? Well, the Bible doesn't say. It could be many, many times. If the person repents, that's the end of the discipline. You've won your brother. Now, there would be exceptions. Let's say we have a young unmarried couple in the church, and she gets pregnant. And they, you go to them, and you say, you know, it's sin to be involved in relations outside of marriage, and they both repent. Okay, but she's still pregnant. And I would argue in that case, the couple should get up before the church at a church meeting and express their confession and their repentance. The church can then openly forgive them, be supportive of them in the carrying the baby and so on. But Or, or another one, if you have a, a person in the church convicted of a crime, and it comes out on the front page of the paper, well, even if he's repentant of that crime, he needs to confess to the church and receive forgiveness And uh, because it's a public thing at that point. Then if the person doesn't listen, Jesus says we need a private conference with witnesses. Take two or three witnesses. Now, they may be others who know about the problem. They may be church leaders that you go to. Uh, The point is you're strengthening the reproof and you're making the offender, I hope, realize this is serious. And your goal, again, is still the same. You want to see the person repent and and, uh, be restored. Then, thirdly, Jesus says a public announcement to the church. And although he doesn't specify, I think the Lord would mean It should come through the church leaders. They are the ones who are in authority over the church. And uh, before they make it public to the church, they should go to the offender and say, you know, if you don't repent on such and such a date, we're going to need to tell it to the church. So you give him fair warning before that step is taken. If the sin 
has to be made public, then the church needs to be instructed on how do you relate to the person in sin. Um, I believe they should no longer fellowship with that person as if there's no problem. Paul says, don't even eat with such a one. You say, what if I'm married to him? Uh, That's a touchy one, and we'll try and give you instruction at that point. But, um, you know, I, I think what he means is that we're not to treat them just as if nothing's wrong. In first, in Second Thessalonians 3.15, Paul says, Don't associate with such a one. And then he adds this, Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And so the relationship has changed. He's not your enemy. He's still a brother, but he's a brother with a problem. And so you don't get together and say, hey, come on over. A bunch of guys are watching the game on Saturday, and you just kind of treat him like there's no problem. Every time you see him, you should say, listen, I'm concerned about you. I want to see you restored to the Lord. How are you doing? Uh, Are you willing to talk about this? Are you willing to repent? And you're trying to exhort him to come back. And the message is, you know, we love you. We want you back. But fellowship isn't going to be the same until you repent. And then the final step, if there's no repentance, is public exclusion from the church. Verse 17 of Matthew 18, Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, tax gatherer, or in 1 Corinthians 5.13, remove the wicked man from your among yourselves. Now Paul seems to bypass the earlier steps that Jesus mentions And there are different explanations of that. It seems to me that out of his concern over the Corinthian complacency over this guy's sin and the fact that it's damaging the reputation of the church, he's saying there needs to be immediate removal and then we can deal with this man, go to him, seek to get him restored. But I think if someone's open sin is damaging the church because the world says, oh, they're tolerant of that guy's sin in that church, that's not good. At that point, you put the person out of the fellowship and uh, then try to get him to come back to the Lord. But if you delay removing him, it communicates to the world, we're tolerant, hey, no, no problem, and that's not right. Now, the, the last step is public restoration when there's genuine repentance. And sadly, some love their sin more than they love Christ, and they'll never repent. Others do repent. Uh, More likely what happens, I've seen this happen, they don't repent, they just move to a church down the street. And that church never asks any questions. Oh, welcome, we need new members, thanks, good to have you. That's not right. If somebody comes here and there's a problem at another church, we want to direct them, go back to that church and get it made right first. And then you can join with us. Um, And uh, some who repent are going to show godly sorrow over their sin. If they've, say, stolen from a brother, they'll make restitution. They'll do deeds appropriate to repentance. And at that point, the church needs to be informed and forgive and restore the person. Now, restoring the person doesn't mean immediately you have them teaching Sunday school or Get involved in a ministry. There needs to be a time of testing. Is the repentance genuine? Uh, Let's not 
give them too much responsibility too soon, and they need to be discipled to help them grow. In all of that, I hope you understand, the church is not a fellowship of sinless people. We're all sinners in process, but we are trying to pursue a life of holiness and obedience. And when we sin, we want to repent, and we want to get back on the path and follow the Lord. And so we don't want to fall into any spiritual pride if somebody sins of thinking, ah, we're not like that. How could they do such a thing? Well, they can do such a thing because they're just like you are, and I am. We're all sinners. But we want to help one another to grow in Christ, to be a holy people. And if there is sin in our midst, we should mourn. But it's very clear, if we don't deal with sin in our church, then pretty soon the church blends in with the world, and the Lord warns he's going to come and remove our lampstand. We'll lose our witness. And uh, we don't want to go there. So we have to practice biblical church discipline toward professing Christians who persist in sin. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, and that's an opportunity for us to judge our sins. Paul says before we partake, we should uh, look, examine ourselves, and then partake. The implication is we need to confess any known sin to the Lord and resolve to go to any brother or sister with whom we're at odds and make it right, be restored, and then we will partake. The men are going to hand out the elements, and uh, while that's going on, just go before the Lord, and then I'll lead us in just a few moments. If you're a visitor with us and you know Christ as your Savior and Lord, Uh, You're welcome to join with us as we partake in a few moments.